in terms of where is my honor to God, and we started by showing that He holds the ministry, I think, of the nation as a whole, and in the church in particular, <clears throat> responsible that they and the people are not honoring Him as God. And it is a very serious situation that he is going to take into hand. Now, how is this problem going to be solved? And I hinted a sermon or two back that we would get down to what might be our part in it. Where do we fit in the plan and uh, how God is going to get honor? Now, he does take it into his own hands. Because, generally speaking, men are not willing to honor God. The Egyptians, the Mitzriamites, who held Israel captive, were not willing to honor God. I want to go back for a moment here to Exodus 14. You know the story here of Israel, the Passover, the Exodus, and so on. Uh, and it is quite a story. But let's go to chapter 14. I just want to pick up a point here. Verse 15, The Eternal said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Speak to the children of Israel that they go forward. Now, he had given Israel instruction. They were fearful. They were timorous. They were afraid of the Egyptians. And they didn't want to move forward. They didn't want to do what they needed to do to be delivered by the mighty hand of God. Now, we see promises all through the Bible about how God will deliver His people. But we find that God's people, in many respects, refuse to be delivered because we will not do those things which are required in order that we might be delivered. But God had determined that this was going to happen. And he says, But lift up your rod and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. And the children of Israel shall go on dry ground through the midst of the sea. So the, though they were fearful, though they feared man more than God, and that's a common thing throughout history, God decided he would deliver them anyway. And what did he say next? And I, behold, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians, and they shall follow them, and I will get me honor upon Pharaoh and upon all his hosts, upon his chariots and upon his horsemen. I will get my honor that I deserve, and I will do it on the Egyptians. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Eternal when I have gotten me honor upon Pharaoh, upon his chariots, and upon his horsemen. We know that God divided the sea. Israel marched through on dry land. The Egyptians and Pharaoh were drowned to the man, every last one of them. Israel then feared God. And the Egyptians back home saw their entire army and their government destroyed before their very eyes, even as they saw their entire empire destroyed with plagues. 
So God got him honor upon the Egyptians. Chapter 15, Then sang Moses and the children of Israel this song to the Eternal, and spoke, saying, I will sing to the Eternal, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider has he thrown into the sea. The Eternal is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will prepare him an habitation, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. That gives me chills to see their reaction. When God made His hand known, everybody in the picture here realized that God was God. That He had power. That He was not dead but alive. And we are in this series about the living God. I could go through the entire Bible and recount story after story where God did this type of thing. I don't want to take the time to do a great deal of that. I do want to pick out one more, though. Let's go to the book of Samuel, 1 Samuel. Now, this is the case where Eli was the priest and his two sons were uh, doing all manner of sin by, in front of the temple and in the temple. And God took Eli to task. He had tried to tell his sons they shouldn't be doing what they were doing, but they went ahead anyway. And a priest came to, or someone, of, a prophet of God came to Eli and told him that He and his sons were making themselves fat, in verse 29, with the chiefest of all the offerings of Israel, my people. Wherefore, the eternal God of Israel says, I said indeed that your house and the house of your father should walk before me forever. So God had said, I expect you and your house and the people of Israel always to obey me, walk with me, walk before me forevermore. Not to be turned to idols, to other things, to adultery, which is what the sons were doing in front of the temple. But now the Eternal says, Be it far from me. For them that honor me, I will honor. And they that despise me shall be lightly esteemed. So he said, I'm not going to even look to all of Israel to honor me anymore, but I will honor those who honor me. He brought it down to an individual matter. He could not trust Israel to honor him anymore. Now that same thing was repeated in Malachi, was it not? The priesthood does not honor me. The people do not honor me. Where is my honor? So, we have seen in the prophecies that he says that God is going to honor those who honor him. He is bringing it down at this day to the individual responsibility before God. And anyone who does not honor him will be esteemed lightly. And he said, Behold, the days come, but I will cut off your arm 
and the arm of your father's house, that there shall not be an old man in your house. He goes on to show that his two sons would die in verse 34, and that there would never be another old man in the house of Eli, because they would be killed in the flower of their age, and would not produce children, and Eli's house would die out. So a house that would not honor God in heaven would be blotted out. The same thing is about to happen, is already happening in the church, and will very soon happen in this nation. Where is the honor of God? We may have problems with the power system today. The lights are flickering on and off. If you out on the telephone line, uh, hear the power come and go here. <coughs> it rained most of the night and then snowed most of the morning, and it's kind of, I think, a, a mixture of a little bit of both right now, but uh, it is affecting the power grid here in the area somewhat, so please bear with us if it blinks on and off a few more times, or goes off entirely, we don't know. So, what is our part? in this whole thing that is happening and about to happen in our nation and the world to show that God is indeed alive, that He is a living God. He tells us in one of the Ten Commandments, Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long upon the earth. Now that applies to the individual child of a physical couple, but it also applies to God our Father in heaven. And he is about to cut life off from the earth, not extend it, because the world, this nation, and the church have not honored him as our Father in heaven. That is where we are. What about this nation? God is dead to most people. We've taken God out of the courtrooms. We've taken God out of the classrooms. You cannot put the Bible there, the Ten Commandments there. You cannot pray in our public places anymore. God is dead to the American people. There was a time, 50, 60 years ago, when we still at least gave lip service to God, and there was a certain amount of law and order in the land, but from the 60s on, that dissipated more and more, <clears throat> and rather than having a standard of morality, <clears throat> as espoused by the Bible, we've come to the point that we are an amoral society, that is a society without morals, situation ethics. In this situation, I will do whatever I feel like doing, is what we have in our culture today. God is denounced by most, and we have multiculturalism. People coming from all over the world, bringing their gods with them. We have people now, instead of worshiping the Creator God, worshiping Mother Gaia, the earth. The earth is what produced us. We crawled out of the ocean. We evolved on this earth. There is not a God in the heavens, but we were generated right here. The whole green movement is about that. Green up the earth. Take care of the earth. Worship the earth. 
The animals, the plants are more important than mankind is the message that is coming out to us. You don't think America has changed? Let's look at the Pledge of Allegiance. I pledge allegiance to the fag of the United States of America. This culture, people of God, pledges allegiance to lesbianism, homosexuality, within gender marriage, abortion of babies, That was shocking, wasn't it? That's where we are. The Bible condemns this kind of thing in no uncertain terms. But that is where we're placing our allegiance. In our courts, in our government, we accept it. We tolerate it. Not only that, we encourage it. In our schools, where they are taught that same-sex partners are a normal way of life now. Not all schools yet, but it's spreading. That's what we pledge allegiance to in this country. To the United States of America. There was a time we were united. Now we are not. We are coming apart at the seams. No one knows what the goal and the purpose of America is anymore. We are not united in a direction toward God, toward anything but self-satisfaction. And that goes many different directions with the people of America. I will be gratified. I will do what I want to do. We do not have a goal, a purpose that we are united in. It's almost laughable to say that we are a nation indivisible. We're becoming increasingly divided every day between the political parties and new political parties. And now the protests that have been going on in the Middle East are spreading to America and is going to grow Worse and worse and worse as conditions get worse. One nation? You've got to be kidding. We are divided. Under God? We don't even hardly recognize God anymore. That's a double negative, but we're not here on a grammar course. We're here to understand what's going on. Indivisible, with liberty and justice for all? Who are we kidding? Liberty is rapidly being removed and will be completely gone soon. Justice is a joke in the courts today. The Pledge of Allegiance that they ask us to pledge is a more tattered saying than even the Constitution, I think. 
today? How can you put your hand on your heart and pledge allegiance to this ungodly mess that we are living in today? Indeed, where is my honor, says God. I'm going to go back to the book of Isaiah today because for us to understand and really grasp what part we need to play and what God expects of us, we have to lay some background. Now, I know we have done this before and even recently, and this may take me a sermon or two, probably will not by any means finish today. But we need to fully grasp where we are and what God expects of you and me and of other people whom He has called out of this world, wherever they may be upon the earth. What is going to happen next? Where do you and I fit? Let's go back to the beginning of the book of Isaiah. And see what God says about the things which I just mentioned. He says in verse 2 of chapter 1, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth. Listen, Isaiah says, to what I'm about to say here. Do you think that if I were on nationwide television and radio right now with this, that anyone would really care or listen and hear what Isaiah has to say? Very, very few would care to know what Isaiah is about to say. For the Eternal has spoken. I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. He put us in the promised land. He gave us His Bible, His Word, His Law. We rebelled against Him and against it. The ox knows his owner, and the ass his master's crib. But Israel does not know. My people do not consider. Even an ass and an ox know who their owner is. We have no clue today as a nation. Or as a church, if you can believe that, who God is. What a deplorable situation we find ourselves in. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a seed of evil doers, children that are corruptors. They have forsaken the eternal. They have provoked the Holy One of Israel to anger. They are gone away backward. They're not moving forward. They're falling apart and going backward into Satan's arms. You go forward to God. You go backward to Satan. People fall over their, on their backs when they are under the power of Satan. Under the power of God, they fall forward. Why should you be stricken anymore? What about the church? Still dividing. 
biggest piece left, just divided again. Why should you be stricken anymore? You will revolt more and more. The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. Church and nation. Physical and spiritual Israel. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. They have not been closed, neither bound up, neither mollified with ointment. Sores oozing pus and putrefaction that have not been cleansed or covered. We are a pussy mess. Your country is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. It's already happened to the church. Congregations destroyed. Your land, strangers devoured in your presence. And it is desolate and is overthrown by strangers. Already happened to the church. It's history. Still happening, but essentially has happened. Now we are on the verge of it happening to the entire nation before us. This is a prophecy. And it's not just an ancient one. <clears throat> Let's understand who Isaiah is talking to. Chapter 2, verse 2. It shall come to pass in the last days, in the last days, that the mountain of the Eternal's house shall be established in the top of the mountains, and shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow to it. We know from Haggai and Zechariah that a remnant of God's people are going to come and be established in the true Jerusalem and Mount Zion, and that God is going to make them a light to the world. They're going to come from the four corners of the earth to this four corners. Somebody told me the other day that the Nazi swastika represents the four corners. They intended to rule the world. They still do. And will for a short time. People will come. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the eternal from Jerusalem. And it's going to culminate in plowshares being or swords into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks. We're not there yet, are we? But it's coming. What's, what's Isaiah talking about? He's talking about the end of the age. He's talking about where we are right now. Chapter 2, verse 10. What does he tell people? Enter into the rock and hide you in the dust for fear of the eternal and for the glory of His majesty. He is going to get him honor just as he did with Pharaoh and Mitzrayim. The lofty looks of man shall be humbled. Vanity, pride, ego, going to be humbled. And the haughtiness of men shall be bowed down, and the eternal alone shall be exalted in that day. For the day of the Lord, this is an end-time prophecy. It's not about ancient Israel. It was but it's about now, as the day of the Lord is about to come upon us. For the day of the Lord of hosts shall be upon every one of them that is proud and lofty, and upon every one that is lifted up, he shall be brought low. The vanity of man is going to be destroyed. 
and upon all the cedars of Lebanon that are high and lifted up, and all the oaks of Bashan, all the people who look upon themselves as great trees, important and mighty, not little bushes, not blades of grass, but they look upon themselves as the trees of the earth. The bigwigs, the elite, they will be brought down. And upon every high tower and upon every fenced wall, the defenses, the military, will be brought down. And upon all the ships of Tarshish and upon all pleasant pictures, every pretty picture we paint ourselves of our lives will be ripped up. This reminds me of Revelation 18, where the merchant ships are cut off. The traffic is destroyed. The loftiness of man shall be bowed down, and the haughtiness of men shall be made low, and the eternal alone shall be exalted in that day. The day of the Lord is about coming to recognize that there is a living God, and He is the only God. And mankind is going to be shown in no uncertain terms that this is the case. God will get him honor. And they shall go into the holes of the rocks and into the caves of the earth for fear of the eternal and for the glory of his majesty when he arises to shake terribly the earth. This is the end time. He's not done it yet. The book of Revelation says almost exactly the same thing. <coughs> In that day a man shall cast away his idols of silver and his idols of gold, which they made each one for himself to worship, to the moles and to the bats. All of our materialistic society will be worthless. All those things that money could buy will be thrown to the moles and the bats. To go into the clefts of the rocks and into the tops of the ragged rocks for fear of the eternal and for the glory of His majesty when He arises to shake terribly the earth. It says that in the book of Haggai, end of chapter 2. How He is once more going to shake heaven and earth. For behold, chapter 3... <coughs> The eternal of hosts does take away from Jerusalem and from Judah the stay and the staff, the whole stay of bread and the whole stay of water. Are you seeing in the news now the food is becoming scarce worldwide due to horrible weather, due to man's mismanagement, due to the fall of the U.S. dollar, which is being manipulated and inflated beyond comprehension until we will become like Zimbabwe and the Third Reich with totally, utterly worthless money. We are on the verge of that. And they are saying in the next few weeks and months, prices of fuel, prices of food are going to begin to go up dramatically and already are. But that's only the beginning. And not only will they be expensive, they will become scarce. We have had a spiritual famine on, in this land and in the earth, and now it is going to become a physical famine on the earth and in this land. America will not escape. 
Let's see just a little bit more. Chapter 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Eternal sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. So Isaiah is speaking of a time when? When God is going to rise up. He's going to begin to show His glory. This has not been done in the past. It is about to be done. So this is the context he's talking about. Above it stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, <coughs> Holy, holy, holy is the eternal of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. So they're going to arise. They're going to see what God is about to do. And they're going to begin to sing, Holy, 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 as again the book of Revelation says. <clears throat> that God is God. And He is setting His hand to prove that to all mankind. And brother, does it need proved. Look at the world and look at our nation today. We cannot even imagine to what extent God is going to go to show His glory, His majesty, His power, His might, and that He is not a dead God. We can't worship the earth. We worship the Creator of heavens and earth, the living God. I do believe... <clears throat> that He is arising to do this now. Zechariah 2 says that He will arise there at the end of the chapter to do His work. He's going to do His mighty work. That it's time. Well, Zechariah 2 is set in Haggai and Zechariah in the time of the remnant church building the temple and of the two witnesses coming on the scene. So what he is describing here is what Haggai and Zechariah echo a bit further down the line. Then said I, Lord, how long? How long is it going to last? I think I read this last week. He answered, Until the cities be wasted without inhabitant, and the houses without man, and the land be utterly desolate. We see the church congregations of the church already destroyed, and hardly anybody left in them. And now we are seeing people being moved out of their homes. And this will not get better. It will get worse. Until they are all empty and not inhabited. And our people are killed and taken into captivity. And the eternal, verse 12, have moved men far away. And there be a great forsaking in the midst of the land. <coughs> but yet in it shall be a tenth, and it shall return, and shall be eaten as a teal tree, as an oak, whose substance is in them, when they cast their leaves, so the holy seed shall be the substance thereof. The holy seed, speaking first of all of the church. He's going to gather a remnant of the church, as Haggai says. Then he is going to preserve out of physical Israel about 10% to begin the millennium. But there's a many millennium coming first. A remnant of the church is going to gather and stand as an oak because of the glory of God. Those who consider themselves oaks 
and furs of the world will be brought down. And God is going to raise up those who have holiness, who have strength within them from God. Not their righteousness, but His, as Isaiah 54 points out. Now, we discussed last week Isaiah 7 and 8 and how a conspiracy is now there and how Ephraim would be destroyed that it be not a people within 65 years from whenever this is dated. And then a sign God gave Himself of Emmanuel, God with us. God said He's going to be with a remnant at the end. Now, I mentioned a date uh, when the church was incorporated is possibly a time. We're in, we're in a time here where the UN was founded, which is a conspiracy to rule the world. Uh, it's, not, it's not a new conspiracy. It's gone on for centuries and centuries. In fact, all the way back to Nimrod, really. People have conspired to rule the earth. And so, even today, as in all ages, the same is true. Now, this is an end-time prophecy. And I don't know when God began counting it. We could have said the UN, but that's a little over 65 years ago when it was founded. We might say when the church was founded, because this has to do with the church and the remnant first of the spiritual Israel. And if you consider that from time of incorporation in, on March 3rd of 46, then we're very near that, only a couple weeks away. I don't see it happening that fast. I mean, I don't look and see the signs and see it, although who knows when God tells Satan, proceed, it could happen immediately. So I don't know that it will happen that fast. I don't want to set any dates. All I'm doing is looking at some things and uh, speculating as to when God might be counting this because this is an important prophecy for us. Uh, Ambassador College began in 1947. That's when God's work began to get bigger and wider in scope and began to have some impact after the college began to produce people to go out and do that. Is God counting from 1947? I don't know. The nation of Israel, as we know it over there in the Middle East, was founded in 1948. Does it have something to do with that? I don't know. But God started counting the 65 years from somewhere in this neighborhood because we see the things that are being talked about here happening before our very eyes. So I'm not trying to set a date. I'm trying to give you some possibilities where God counted from. But the bottom line is, it is close. Okay? Very close. We're a nation already, in some respects, that is no longer a people. Do we grasp that? I'm not trying to spiritualize away this prophecy, because we haven't fallen and gone into captivity yet, physically, to the other nations. But we're not a people anymore. We're individuals seeking our own pleasure, seeking our own fortune, seeking whatever we seek. We don't even know what our government is doing for the most part. We're not a nation under God undivided. America is an empire and most Americans don't even know it. We haven't done it in the traditional fashion going in and conquering people usually. 
and then uh, colonizing them. But our government goes in and sets up and takes down governments. Saddam Hussein, the Shah of Iran in 79, Mubarak more recently. You think we weren't behind that? <clears throat> we set him up in the first place. The American government has set up all those, essentially all those nations over there. You see, it was put to us as foreign aid. We're generous, charitable, loving people, and we're helping the poor of the world. So we send aid. Makes us look benevolent and wonderful, doesn't it? That's not what it's even about. What it's about is setting up dictators and other forms of government that pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America behind the scenes. And they get all kinds of money and power and fame from us. It's all about us protecting the nation of Israel and controlling oil and the price thereof. And Mubarak has been a good boy to us for a long, long time. But more recently, the last two or three years, he has opposed us attacking Iran and has made it public in speeches. And suddenly, our puppet in Egypt is gone. He was going to stand up against the protests. Even the military had conceded, well, maybe he can stay till the next election or whatever. But then suddenly, he decided to resign, pack up his millions or billions, and march away. Who do you think was behind that? Now, isn't it strange that our own government, <clears throat> who established him there, who paid him to be there, was saying, you need to listen, Mubarak, to the people. You need to hear what the people are saying and what they want. In other words, they want you out of there. You need to listen. We were telling him even in public to go away. That's from the president. What were we saying behind the scenes? Go away or else. In whatever form that may have taken. We are dead set upon attacking Iran. And anyone who stands in the way of that is going to go. Do you think for a moment that our government is going to stand up to Wisconsin or Ohio or wherever this breaks out next and say, all right, all you politicians, Democrats, Republicans, you need to listen to the people. You need to do what the people say. Give me a break. You think the government's going to react that way if Americans do it? No. But when these people in the Middle East do it, we tell the leaders now, listen to those people. Get out of our way. Our government is desperate. We have destroyed the dollar on purpose and are printing it rapidly and rapidly at the moment. And inflation is going to go crazy 
sometime in the near future. And we are seeking to control all the oil. Now, let's understand, as this is my opinion, what does Daniel 8 say? It says that there will be a goat flying from the west, not touching the ground. And he will fly to the east and break a horn of the ram in the east. And then he will break the, the, horn, the other horn of the ram. Then Daniel goes on to explain that this is Medo-Persia. Iraq and Iran are the land of the Medo-Persian Empire. We have broken the horn of Iraq. We're about to break the horn of Iran, the Persians. They call themselves Persians, not Arabs, but Persians. And then it says the goat will have his horn broken. We're going to make a desperate attempt. And then our horn is going to be broken. This is coming up soon. Don't know just when, but soon. Now, the sign that God Himself gave was that if God would be with a certain people, those who would obey Him and serve Him. Emmanuel means God with us. Well, God is going to be with a small few. And they will use the name Emmanuel, as Matthew said. You call His name Jesus, they will call Him Emmanuel. So from the time that that child could be conceived, born, and grow to the point of knowing good from evil, this prophecy of the 65 years of Ephraim would come to pass. So it's not spelled out specifically. He says within 65 years. Okay, from what? Don't know for sure. What age does a child know good from evil? That's a little bit dicey as well. Some children learn quicker than others. Some are a little slow at it. I don't think you can pinpoint what day and hour a child knows that. But it's within three, four, five years after he's born, you know, and I don't know, what, what age can you say? We might all have an opinion, but God leaves it a little open-ended, doesn't He? He doesn't say when the child is three, when the child is four, when the child is five. He leaves it open-ended. In other words, God does not want us to know exactly when, but He wants us to understand and know when it is getting close. Just as when Christ was born on this earth, there was a great air of expectancy that He was to be born. And then when He was born, the wise men came and reported it. And Herod got afraid because he said this would be the king of Israel. And he didn't know exactly when. So what did he do? He reacted in panic and killed every kid, every boy that was two years old from the time that he heard about this. Because he didn't know exactly. So he said, well, kill them all that are two years and younger. Let's be sure we get this so-called king of Israel dead. But God told Joseph in a dream to take him to Egypt, and he did. And he was preserved. Just as Moses was by Pharaoh's daughter. Well, God knows exactly what He's doing. 
There's a subsequent prophecy to that with Maher Shalal Hashbaz in chapter 8. The word means that the prey, the spoil, is going to come quickly. And he was to go into his wife and have a child. And by the time it would be able to say, Daddy and Mommy, this destruction of the Assyrian would come. So there you have it. They told all the people, the nations, to associate themselves in verse 9 of chapter 8. But God is with us. End of verse 10. Emmanuel. Now I hope, in using that name and seeking to find God, God will be with us. And perhaps we are counted among those that he's talking about here. I certainly hope so. Now, God has already said in chapter 1 of this book that He is going to intervene and people are going to know that He's God. He goes on to say, I will terribly shake the earth. So He said, gird yourselves, associate yourselves, get your confederacy going, and I'll show you who's boss. And then He tells us, don't fear them, don't fear the world, fear Me. That is God's constant problem with Israel and with the church. Don't fear what man can do, fear me. Christ made it a very pointed part of His ministry on this earth. Fear not them that can kill the body, but He who can kill both body and soul. <coughs> it's a never-ending problem with mankind. We will fear anything but God, it seems. Why are we so stubborn and rebellious? So backsliding as a people. And the church has been the same way. God will be a sanctuary, verse 14. And many among them shall fall and stumble and fall and be broken and be snared and be taken. But he says, bind up the testimony. Seal the law among my disciples. And I think that's about where we wound up last week. But I wanted to flesh this out a little bit more. This testimony that Moses and Samuel and Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, all the prophecies are giving is to be bound up among God's disciples and His law with it. But he makes a very important point here. A testimony that God is God and God's law is still in effect. Now the whole so-called Christian world says the law is done away with. But God says those that He is with are the ones that are going to say the law is still in effect. Other than the church of God today, as we have known it, who do you know that backs the law of God among the religions of this world? Most deny God entirely, and this so-called Christian nation denies the power thereof and the law thereof and the words thereof. So it is in name only. It means absolutely nothing. God gives us instruction. 
about morality, about homosexuality, and we utterly ignore it. And we kill babies by the billions. It's disgusting. He said you'd become like Sodom and Gomorrah back in Isaiah. I missed that one. Why did God destroy Sodom and Gomorrah? Homosexuality. That's why. And he says you're going to be like them. That's one of the major reasons God is going to destroy this country. We have perverted the family, sexuality, and everything that is supposed to point toward the kingdom of God. And God is angry. Verse 18, Behold, I and the children whom the Eternal has given me are for signs and for wonders in Israel from the Eternal of hosts which dwells in Mount Zion. Isaiah was saying this, but it's repeated in Zechariah 3, where God shows there that a leader will stand up and that there will be men of signs and wonders there as well. So it's speaking about now. Should not a people seek God instead of familiar spirits and wizards that peep and that mutter? We have an incredible amount of Satanism going on in the world today. Satanic music, satanic religion, satanic leaders who even give the sign of the goat or Satan. (coughs) Shouldn't we seek God? Again, he says, to the law and to the testimony. If they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. Even as the Apostle John said that in 1 John. Same problem in the early New Testament church that there was in ancient Israel that we have today in the end time church. Nothing has changed. Is it changing with us? Can we be a people that will have Emmanuel, God, with us? I hope and pray that we can be accounted in that number, brethren. Verse 22, they shall look to the earth. They'll look to the earth. And behold, trouble and darkness, dimness of anguish, and they shall be driven to darkness. And then he says that a certain people that dwell in the land of the shadow of death will have the light shine upon them. In verse 2 of chapter 9. Verse 6, for unto us a child is born. Unto us a child, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And the government that he establishes with an end-time people that God is with will spread when Christ returns over the entire earth. And it will increase and increase. Now do we get the picture? That there is to be a people who turn to Him at the end time that God is going to begin this process with. (coughs) Then he goes on down and talks about what's going on now. Verse 9, All the people shall know, even Ephraim and the inhabitant of Samaria. That's Israel, Jacob, today. 
that say in the pride and stoutness of heart, didn't he say in chapter 1, the, hum, the, the proud will be humbled and so on? They'll say <clears throat> in their pride and stoutness of heart, the bricks are fallen down, but we will build with hewn stones. The sycamores are cut down, but we will change them into cedars. Isn't it part of what you can read today? The people realize our system is coming apart, but you know what their take is on it? We're going to fix it. Once we get these guys out of the government, and once we straighten out this financial situation, if we keep our gold and our silver five, six years, ten years from now, everything's going to be hunky-dory again. That's what you read on the Internet from people who realize the system is coming apart, but they say, we will fix it. Just as it says here. Therefore, now what does God think about that? The Eternal shall set up the adversaries of resin against him and join his enemies together. God is going to cause our enemies to come together. The Syrians before, the Philistines behind, and they shall devour Israel with open mouth. Now the Syrians represent probably a part of the Arabic or Islamic world. The Philistines were black, part of Ham. So they're involved. Go back to Psalm 83. We've been there recently. And you'll see a whole amalgamation of peoples that are going to come against us. I just read that Syria, I mean Germany, and uh, Iran have made a treaty. Don't know all the details of it, but they are getting together. Now, those are just little things we see on the surface here and there from alternate news, and a little bit now even on the mainstream media. But how many meetings are going on behind the scenes as they see the dollar collapse, as they see America going for power, for broke in the Middle East, and to retain our oil and so on? A lot of meetings going on. There are meetings going on about replacing the dollar. Well, we know this is all prophesied. They're going to have a global currency. America is going to be destroyed by the beast and the false prophet. Babylon will fall. We're the present leader of it. <clears throat> so some coalition against America is being formed already. You think that what they see happening in this country is going unnoticed? The Chinese talk about it. The Europeans talk about it. The Islamic world talks about it. They're forming alliances right and left. They're stopping the buying of American bonds and financing American debt. Albert Pike, leading Mason, back in the late 1800s, said there will be three world wars. And he described who would perpetrate them. The first two happened just as he said. And he said that the last will be between the Islamic world and the West. Now, is that shaping up or what? But it is not going to be the Islamic world that leads it. They're involved in it, as it says here in verse 11 and 12. But verse 5 of chapter 10 says, O Assyrian, the rod of my anger, and the staff in their hand is my indignation. 
I will send him against a hypocritical nation, a nation that claims God is God, but doesn't do anything he says. And against the people of my wrath, who is he most angry about? A, spiritual Israel, the church, which he's just scattered, and B, physical Israel, our people that he is about to scatter. That's where his wrath is mostly placed. The people of my wrath will I give him a charge to take the spoil and to take the prey and to tread them down like the mire or the dung of the streets. God is going to give the Assyrian that power. They will lead it. He doesn't mean so, neither does his heart think so, but it is in his heart to destroy and cut off nations, not a few. They tried it twice in the 20th century, didn't they? Now, they may right now say we're a peace-loving people. It isn't in our heart to destroy, but it's in the leader's heart to survive what is coming down in the earth, that is, the global economy. And they have the Edomites with them, Rothschilds and others who are plotting and planning to replace the U.S. dollar, and that's why they're destroying it now by quantitative easing and other means. They're going to destroy it and replace it. It's just survival. It isn't that the Assyrian is over there thinking, I hate everybody and I'm going to kill them all. No, it's not their attitude. <coughs> but they're going to try to survive. And the idea of the master race will be revived. And so will the swastika apparently representing the four corners of the earth that they intend to rule. Now, we can go on through Isaiah. <clears throat> After what he has just been talking about here, he gives different prophecies against various peoples and nations. He comes down... And I want us to focus here a little more now so that we understand our role in the end and what God is going to do with the remnant of the church. Because really it affects us. Now we see the devastation in the church and we are now seeing, not thinking about, but seeing the demise of the nation and it will not be long before it is taken over. But beginning in chapter 36 of Isaiah, I think we have here a parallel between an ancient king and the present day, or the end time, church of God, let's say. I find it very interesting in chapter 36. It came to pass in the 14th year of King Hezekiah that Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the defense cities of Judah and took them. Now I see... I think fairly clearly, a parallel between Herbert Armstrong and Hezekiah here. <coughs> Excuse me. Now, God began to work with Herbert Armstrong in the area of 1926-1927. And when did Germany rise upon the scene? About 14 years later give or take a little bit there, but in that area. By 1939, 
40, you got World War II. <clears throat> and we were pulled into that. Here you had the king of Assyria coming against Israel and Judah about 14 years into Hezekiah's reign. Isn't that interesting? Now, the Assyrian, in this case, did not win, did he? It turns out that God protected Hezekiah, and 145,000 Assyrians God killed overnight. King ran home, and his sons killed him. So, the parallel is quite interesting in the end time that the Assyrian came against our nation, against Europe, Britain, and ultimately our nation, along with their allies, including Japan and the East, about that time. And they were defeated. Now, Hezekiah was essentially a man of God, a righteous king, and yet he had some problems. He almost died. I'm not going to go through all of this in detail. We've been there before, but I want, to, I want us to see this before we move on a little bit. <coughs> Hezekiah was going to die. He pled to God, and God added 15 years to his life. He even turned the sundial back as a sign of that. Now, Emmanuel Velikovsky and others say that the time that we lost the 360-day year and came up with 365 and a quarter was in the days of Hezekiah. And in that particular time, all the calendars around the world changed. They had to deal with the extra five and a quarter days that resulted from this sundial changing. Now, isn't it interesting that the prophecies of the Bible are written based on a 360-day, what they call, prophetic year. But the numbers given in those prophecies, 1260 days, 42 months, and three and a half years, cannot coincide, cannot happen, unless you have a 360-day year. So in Hezekiah's day, the sundial was turned back as a sign that he would live 15 more years. Now, in the end time, we are beginning to recognize in the church, and a few others beside of us have seen it, that for those prophecies to be fulfilled, God has to change the heavens again. So in the days of Hezekiah, and in the days of the end time church, we see the heavens changed for the worst, and we're going to see them changed back for the good. An interesting parallel. Now he told Hezekiah, I'm going to give you 15 more years. Herbert Armstrong had a heart attack and almost died. By all intents and purposes and normal circumstances, he would have died and almost, very, very close to it, he came. And then he lived. And then what did he do? Well, before that, to some degree, and afterward, <clears throat> he showed the world everything he had. Just as Hezekiah showed the king of Assyria everything he had. The parallel there is astonishing. 
Let's look at the end of the story specifically. I think I mentioned it recently, but I want to again review it here. Isaiah came to Hezekiah, verse 3 of chapter 39, uh, and said to him, What said these men, and where did they come to you? Hezekiah said, They are come from a far country unto me, even from Babylon. Then said he, What have they seen in your house? And Hezekiah answered, All that is in my house have they seen. We built a big auditorium, brought people from all the world, over the world, and the culture of the world. We had the AICF, and we were trying to be a part of the world in that sense and show them what we had, even as Hezekiah did. <clears throat> and from Babylon came home Stanley Rader and Joseph Tkach. Not converted, not understanding truth, crept in unawares, saying they were Jews when they were not. And in fact, I think both were Edomites, Ashkenazi Jews. <clears throat> I've shown them everything. I've not hid any of my treasures from them. Then said Isaiah to Hezekiah, Hear the words of the Eternal of hosts. Behold, the days come that all that is in your house and that which your fathers have laid up here in store till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Eternal. Now you see the story of the work that comes after Herbert Armstrong in Haggai and in Zechariah. Zechariah 5 is a bit of an enigmatic prophecy. And yet it shows the two unclean birds will shut the mouth of the basket of truth so they cannot utter anything anymore. And those two unclean birds will carry the church away into Babylon and set it upon its base there. So that prophecy of this end time church is exactly like what was said here. Did not Stanley Rader <clears throat> and then ultimately the two unclean bird Tkachas take the church right back into Babylon and set it on its own base in evangel the word won't come right evangelistic Protestantism set it on its base in Babylon took it away from God and those who remained with the Sabbath and the Holy Days, have also been scattered more and more and more because of the lukewarmness therein. That includes all of us. <clears throat> Nothing shall be left, says the Eternal. All those fine buildings, those fine campuses, that great auditorium, right back into Babylon, taken over by Protestants. Campus in Big Sandy, campus in Pasadena, all the same. Gone! Church doesn't have them anymore. Everything with built. And of your sons that shall issue from you, which you shall beget, shall they take away. All those sons who came to Herbert Armstrong through the calling of God would be taken away. And we see that happening in the church, and it's almost complete. And three shepherds must yet fall. Three large oaks, Zechariah 11, 
and that it will be complete. And they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. We were cast back into the world, essentially. Now, God uses an analogy here of Hezekiah's sons being uh, made eunuchs. Why does he use this analogy? Because whatever work they try to do to produce children, new converts, to cause the church to grow, would fail. They're shooting blanks, if you will, if anything. The testicles have been taken away, the symbol of the power of the male to reproduce. So God says when this church is taken into Babylon, it will lose all virility, all power to generate children. Now, we have various movements of the church, different scattered splinters of the church, who are trying to grow the church, who are trying to spread the gospel, who are trying to win converts, and they are having virtually no success. They cannot produce children. They are emasculated, just as this says. Then said Hezekiah to Isaiah, Good is the word of the Eternal which you have spoken. What? He just told him his children, his sons, were going to be taken into Babylon and emasculated. And Hezekiah said, Well, good is the word of the Eternal which you have spoken. He said, Moreover, from, for there shall be peace and truth in my days. Herbert Armstrong realized when he was trying to appoint a successor, knowing he was getting up in life, and he began to realize he may not live, he wouldn't, maybe would not live to see the end of this age. He couldn't find a successor. I was in his office in 1981, and he kept saying, this one can't do it, that one can't do it, another one can't do it. We were there to talk about something else, but he had that on his mind. I can't find anybody. So I know personally what a fight he had to try to keep things going. And yet in this prophecy it says they won't keep going. In 1983, I had my last personal encounter with him, again, to talk about something else. But as we were going, I've not said this before, but as we were going into his office, he said, just a moment, he said, I have to go into the restroom here and take my heart pills. He said, I know I shouldn't be taking them, but he said, if I die, I know the church is going to fall apart. So he said, I've got to live if I can, and therefore, even though I realize I should be depending upon God for my life, I'm taking these because I know if I die, it's going to all come to an end. Now, he realized as long as he lived that there would be essentially peace and truth in his days. He also realized that when he died, it would go away, and it did, almost immediately. Changed makeup, 
changed uh, healing almost immediately. And it went downhill from there until it was destroyed. Now, did the church go back into Babylon or what? And once it did, were those who were left behind to try to carry on unable to produce children. That is what has happened. All the millions, all the booklets, all the magazines have produced almost nothing. We see people going in and out of the different groups. We don't see many new people. And when they do come, they usually stay a week or two or five, and then they disappear because there's nothing there that would cause them to stay. It's sad that it's been set on its base in Babylon by unclean birds and even those who try to maintain the worldwide aura or form are emasculated. They have no power. All right. That sets the stage. What time is it? Time to quit. Got about ten minutes left, but I don't have time to get into it. God willing, and I survive a week. We're here on next Sabbath. I plan to show you what happens next. We see the prophecies. We see our nation falling apart, even as the church has. And I think we can see very closely here a parallel between Hezekiah's life in Israel and Herbert Armstrong's life. Now, he is dead, and the church has fallen apart. What comes next? Because I will guarantee you, the living God is going to get himself honor. And he wants you and I to help him prove who he is. That's a scary thought but we will address it next week.